0: reading today is Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The Holy One, enthroned in heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me just add my welcome to Andrews. Uh, Great to see you here. If you don't know me, my name's Jeff. Uh, Just before we get started on looking at uh, Psalm 2 together, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to those who've been praying during the week for GAFCON, uh, the conference happening in Jerusalem where many of our uh, congregation have been during the week. Uh, I know people have told me they've been uh, watching the live stream and uh, have been encouraged by it and have. Enjoyed seeing some St. Stephen's faces being interviewed and becoming internet stars and that kind of thing. Uh, So it's been encouraging to know that's all happening. Uh, And uh, I think I just got told before by Charlie that uh, people are on their way back as we speak in Hong Kong. So they're about halfway, give or take. What time are people expected back? 5am. 5am. Great. Well, we'll all wake up just to be there and greet them at the airport. Be Lots lots of uh, lovely reunions happening tomorrow. That's good to know. Let's uh, pray before we look at this part of God's word. Gracious God, we do thank you that you've spoken to us, that you haven't left us in darkness, but that you've you've revealed yourself to us in your word and in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, as we listen to your word now, we pray that you would give us minds that are able to understand, uh, ears that are ready to hear, and hearts that long to obey, And to live according to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's easy, isn't it, to look at the world around you as a Christian and to feel a sense of fear, to feel maybe a sinking sense of despair or something like that. That's probably been true at every point in history in some way or other, but especially as we live today in a culture that by any measure is galloping further and further away. From its Christian roots, and therefore further and further away from God himself. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the 19th century American poet, tried to capture that feeling that Christians might have, as they look at the world, in the form of a limerick. Now, when was the last time you heard a sermon that started with a limerick? So here we go. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We hope that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. <laughs> now, is that true? Is the other side winning? Which would, of course, mean that God and his people are losing. Did we, human beings, spoil things with our rebellion? Did we leave poor old God sitting up in heaven fretting about the state of his world, fretting that things aren't working out like he planned and he's losing It certainly feels that way, but of course, our feelings can lead us astray and be deceptive. So what do we make of a world around us that seems to rage against God, either aggressively or maybe just quietly and subtly, and for the most part, seems to get away with it? And more importantly, what does God make of a world like that, where that seems to be the way people react? Well, Psalm 2 answers those questions for us. Uh, It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, uh, and it's one of the most important psalms, I think, not just because it's quoted a lot, not just because it answers those questions for us, but because it shows us exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ fits in as God's answer to those questions. So this psalm is written by David. Uh, We're not told here that it's written by David. We're told that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4. And it's a psalm that starts off with a description of the rage against God. The nations and the peoples of the world rage against the God who made them. Verses 1, 2, and 3 describe what we might call a global mutiny, a cosmic conspiracy to commit treason against our maker. You've got humanity on one side, represented by its kings and its rulers, and you've got the Lord and his anointed one, on the other side now why does that happen why is there this desire for the people of the world made by God to rise up against the God who made them well the basic reason this psalm gives us is freedom freedom and autonomy Do you see verse 3 let us break their chains and throw off their fetters we want to be free of this God Because this God restricts our desire to do what we want. Or to put it another way, we would rather be God than let God be God. That's human nature, according to the Bible. Human nature, whether it's just individually or maybe even more so collectively as we join together, is to seek humanity's own glory and to seek to distance ourselves from our maker because we would rather be God. We would rather be in charge. Let me just for a moment take us over to a chapter in the New Testament, to Romans chapter 1. Now, this is a chapter that contains a powerful description of sin in all of its forms, and we don't have time to delve into it in any detail. But let me just highlight one part of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans about humanity's response to God. So from Romans 1, from verse 18, "...the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth... By their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says that the truth about God is revealed to us in creation, but what do we do with that truth? We suppress it. We're like the little child who's told that it's bedtime and puts their fingers in the air and says, not listening, not listening. We pretend that something's not real because we don't like it. And we don't like it because we would rather be in charge. We long for freedom and autonomy. There was a British philosopher named Aldous Huxley in the 20th century. He was a committed humanist, which is basically the belief that God's probably not real, but if he is, he's not relevant. Humanity's in charge. And in 1937, he wrote a book called Ends and Means. And there's a quote that I want to read you. It's it's a long quote, but I think it's very telling because it's a moment of honesty from a practical atheist about where atheism really comes from. So just listen as I read this and see if you can catch the flow of thought that's written here. It's, you know, slightly academic language, but it's not too bad. Let's just listen to this and see what he's saying. He says... I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confusing these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. Now, there is an honest atheist. If he wanted to cut that down, he could have just written, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Huxley admitted it, Paul saw it, and David saw it. But for David, the the real reason for posing that question is not just to say, why do people do this? The reason for posing that question is to say, why do people do this in vain? He says, why do they do this in vain? Opposing God like this is utterly futile. And we're then told why it's futile, because how does God react? That's the next part of the psalm, God's reaction to human rebellion. And it starts in verse 4 with mockery and laughter. All the nations, all the most powerful people on earth, gather together with everything they have to shake their fist at God, to declare mutiny against God, and God just laughs. That might remind us of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Next to God, the the greatest that humanity can pull together is like the most inconsequential thing that can be swept away in a moment. Rage against God is in vain. Uh, I've got a cartoon here. If this pops up, if we can see this, no cartoon. I'll have to find it and tell you about it later. It's a cartoon of big Jesus, lots of little atheists running around at his feet. It loses it when I describe it to you. It's a shame, but it's good, trust me. It's capturing that idea that whatever humanity can throw at God, whatever humanity can try to throw in God's face, God can sit on his throne completely unmoved. We see a world around us that mocks Christians, that mocks people like us for being backward but it is no threat to God and this is this is crucial for us in in thinking how do we feel when we look at the world crucial in reorienting us as we look at the world and think how do we engage with it because we do see a world like that don't we we do see a world where people reject God mock God seem to get away with it where belief in God belief in Jesus is mocked as childish and outdated Christians are told they're bigoted Following Jesus seems irrelevant and all the rest of it. And we can start to feel small and we can start to feel deflated and we can start to feel defeated. And that leads quickly to fear, doesn't it? And fear then can lead on to all kinds of things. It might lead us to withdraw ourselves from the world because we're scared of it. Or we might be led to, even worse, withdraw ourselves from God. Because if it feels so stupid and like such a failure to be on God's side, well, why would we want to be part of that when it actually costs us things along the way? But if we see that God is completely in control, if we remember that God is on his throne, he is completely omnipotent, if we see that the battle between humanity and God is actually no battle at all, then we as God's people, we don't need to fear. We don't need to despair. And so we won't feel a need to abandon the world because we're threatened by it, and we won't feel the need to abandon God. Instead, we'll be able to keep engaging with our world, loving our world, but do it while we stick with the one who is on the throne, while we stick with God. Whatever it may look like in the moment, if we remember that God is never pushed off his throne, not even for a second, that is utterly in control, so much so that, he can sit back and simply scoff at humanity's attempts to push him off the throne. It'll give us the courage we need. God sits and laughs at human rebellion. But it is not a laughing matter, so to speak. And so God's second reaction is to hold people to account for this act of cosmic treason. Verse 5, we're told God rebukes them In his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. If you think you're getting away with it as you shake your fist in God's face, think again because God sees it all. He is in control, and one day, one day, his rule will be seen with absolute clarity by justly judging humanity for its rebellion against him. One of the common themes in the bible old testament and new testament is for people to think they're opposing god and think they're getting away with it because in the moment it seems that way but one day to realize with absolute clarity that to fight against god is futile and to fight against god in the end brings his just judgment not that we should feel smug or feel superior as god's people as we see that because it's only by god's grace that we have escaped his judgment, we're no better than anyone else. And in fact, we long to see more and more people escape that judgment, as we'll see in this very psalm in a moment. Uh, God is patient, even in his wrath, he wants all people everywhere to repent. But we do see with absolute certainty that God's enemies will face his wrath and his justice one day. But neither of those two things, that is God's scoffing and laughing, or God judging, neither of those two things actually gets to the heart of God's response to human rebellion. The heart of God's response is in verse 6. See verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the kings of the earth are going to conspire together, they're going to get together and take a stand against God. Well, God has a king of his own kind of saying, all right, humanity, I see your kings and I raise you a real king. That's the picture. And whatever power these human rulers look like they have, it's nothing at all compared to the real power and the real authority that God's king has. Because look at what God decrees concerning his king from verse 7. He says "He says to his king, you are my son. Today I've become your father. This isn't just some weak puppet king put in place to do what the real king wants or just the latest in the long line of people competing for the throne this is Yahweh the god of the universe looking at his king and saying you're my son there is the deepest possible connection uh, by the way that the word there become I think can mean something like being shown to be your father today I've been shown to be your father now you've got this king who inherits the whole earth All the nations, the very ends of the earth, belong to him. And we're told that if they oppose him, he can wipe them out in a moment. Think of the little $2 pot that you would buy at the warehouse. Think of holding it in your hand and dropping it and watching it shatter. That's how easy it is for God's king to shatter those who oppose him. God's king stands as judge over the nations. Listen just for a moment to how this comes to fruition around the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, after Jesus has been raised, as the gospel is being preached, uh, as, as it goes out, the Apostle Paul says these words in Acts chapter 17, from verse 30. He says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, for, verse 31, he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God's installed his king. God has shown the world exactly who that king is by raising him from the dead and appointing him as judge of the world with authority over the nations. Jesus is that king. So, how should we then respond to God's king? (coughs) Well, the first three verses of our psalm show us the typical kind of response that humans might make and we see plenty of evidence of that kind of response around us don't we but what does a right response look like a right response looks like humility before god humility before his king it looks like giving up the quest for freedom and autonomy from this god It looks like giving up this ridiculous idea that you could conspire together and overthrow this God. It looks like giving up the ridiculous idea that it would be good for you if you could achieve that. And instead, hearing the warning. (coughs) Stopping the rebellion against your maker. Realizing that your rebellion places you under his wrath and that his unlimited power means he is to be feared. And so we're called to serve him. We're called called to rejoice that he rules, (coughs) but as we rejoice, we also tremble. Uh, We we stop the idea that we're in charge and instead we have the wisdom to humble ourselves before this God. And then as we come to verse 12, we hear those striking words, kiss the sun. It's an image of subservience, isn't it? You can picture it, uh, a a defeated, a, a subject, kneeling before the true king and kissing the hand it's a way of pledging allegiance to god's son a way of honoring him a way of treating him as what he really is as god's king bowing the knee to jesus because he's completely worthy of having us bow the knee to him and recognizing that if we don't we are still under his wrath still headed for destruction And we do need to remember, don't we, that a no to Jesus and a no decision to Jesus are the same thing. Because if you don't actually bow the knee, if you don't, to use the language of the psalm, kiss the son, then effectively, whatever it looks like in practice, you're continuing to turn away from him, continuing to live under his just judgment. And so this isn't just a, a warning for commanders for kings for rulers for those kinds of people in fact i think in the psalm that the kings and the rulers that are spoken of represent all people everywhere so it's a good moment to just pause and and let me ask the question have you whoever you are as you're here this morning and you're listening to this have you bowed the knee to jesus have you kissed the son have you humbled yourself before him knowing that you are part of this human rebellion against God, knowing that you need to escape his justice, his judgment, to know that there is this rebellion and that if we're caught up in it, he takes that seriously enough that he will hold us to account for it. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? And as you think about whether you've done that or not, do remember that, To bow the knee to Jesus is to find true freedom. We live with this illusion that to throw God off is to be free, but actually we're made to live with God as our God. We're made to bow the knee to Jesus. And so we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice that we can join Aldous Huxley and the rest of humanity in the revolt against God and try to find ways to do what we want to do. Or we can recognize that there is no freedom to be found there at all. There's no real freedom to be found in running away from God, thinking that we know better than him, thinking that we can run the world just fine without him, thinking that living under the specter of his wrath is a good life. It only brings emptiness and pain and lostness. And ultimately the wrath of a God who can't be defeated and cares too much to pretend that us rebelling against him doesn't matter. Real freedom is found in living the way we were meant to live. Not as little gods trying to run away from our maker, but to live with God as our king. That's freedom. That's, if you like, the the fetters that we were actually made to live with, to be constrained by what God tells us because God knows what is best for us. And so we humble ourselves before God. And the great news at the end of our psalm is that as we do that, as we humble ourselves before God, there's hope, there's refuge to be found. Look at the the very last line of our psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in God's king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now sometime, maybe later today, when you get a moment, open your Bible up and look at uh, Psalm 2 and then look back and read Psalm 1, the first two psalms of the whole book and you'll notice there's a kind of a mirror image going on. Psalm 1 is uh, mostly a psalm of blessing. In its entirety, it's almost all about blessing. But then you get to the last line of that psalm and you get a stark warning. It says, the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 is the mirror because, as you've seen, it's, it's got serious warnings about God's wrath. It's more of a negative psalm overall. But then it finishes with this single line of hope and of blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, as powerful and unbeatable as the Lord is and as real as the consequences are if we stand against him, there's refuge to be found. There's hope, there's promise, there's blessing. We're told in this psalm that we should serve the Lord with fear because he alone is in charge. We're told he'll overcome his enemies, he's never been kicked off his throne and he's got to hold people to account. We should serve a God like that with a certain measure of fear. But it's possible to misunderstand this fear. It's possible to look at God and to look at his king and to hear these kinds of things and to be so filled with fear that we're driven away from God. That's the wrong response because it's only part of the picture of who God is. The right response is to see those things about God, but to be driven to him. To come to him and to know that while all these things we've seen are true about God, he is a God who offers us refuge. He's a God who offers us safety. He's a God who offers us blessing. It may sound paradoxical, but that's the impact of that last line. It's meant to stop us in our tracks and ask, how can that be? How can it be that if if we've rebelled in this way, that God can still say to us, you can find blessing and you can find refuge. By coming to me, aren't we enemies? How can there be refuge as we come to God? Well, I think to properly answer that question, we need to jump for a moment across to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. and Look at at this as we finish. We jump to the baptism of the Lord Jesus, uh, as his earthly ministry was just beginning. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptised. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus from above. And a voice from God is heard speaking from heaven. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, the voice of God says, looking at Jesus, the voice of God says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now that's much more than God saying some generic nice things about his son as he gets ready to go and start his earthly ministry. It's bringing together two crucial Old Testament references. Now, you recognize one, don't you? You are my son. Where's that from? It's from our psalm. It's from Psalm 2. So, part of what is being said about Jesus at his baptism is, You are the king. This is the one. This is the anointed one, the king, from Psalm 2. But then the voice from heaven goes on and says, With him I am well pleased. That quote comes from the book of Isaiah, specifically from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And that is the beginning of the very first servant song. As you read through Isaiah, you get four what have come to be called servant songs, chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53, and you can read them all when you've got a minute. The servant songs are a series of prophecies, and they describe one who would come in the future to be a suffering servant, to save, to, to, to save God's people by suffering for them to serve God as a suffering servant and ultimately to be the one who would take on himself the punishment that other people deserve for their rebellion against God. And so at Jesus' baptism, in that crucial moment, those two things come together and we're told the mighty king of Psalm 2 is the suffering servant of Isaiah meeting incredibly in the same person. When we bow the knee to Jesus, we no longer need to fear that he may turn against us in his wrath. We're bowing the knee, yes, to God's mighty king, but to one who welcomes us, to one who offers us refuge, to one, in fact, who made himself our servant, When he suffered for us, instead of fearing, instead of worrying that maybe we're still under his wrath, there's now refuge. Not because he suddenly says, well, let's just forget about your rebellion against God. That doesn't matter. But because he says, your rebellion against God is the biggest problem in the world. And it's the biggest problem you will ever face. But I can offer you refuge. Because I'm not just your king, I'm your servant. I've suffered for you. The wrath that you deserved has been poured out on me. I'm your servant king. So have you bowed the knee to Jesus? And if you have, will you continue to serve your mighty king and your suffering servant with all that you have and all that you are for as many days as he gives you? Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for our Saviour and our Lord, Jesus. And we thank you that in him, we have seen our mighty King come into the world for us. And we pray that you would help us all to bow the knee to him. And yet, Father, we praise you that he's not only our mighty King, but also our suffering servant, who offers us refuge. We thank and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.